Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. Now, because you've all been good and there's a holiday coming up, I have a surprise for you. It's William Peter Blatty Week. Today, Adam Barkin, who's a writer and producer on the very fun sci-fi show Killjoys, which starts its third season this Friday on sci-fi in the U.S. and space in Canada, dives into Blatty's first directorial effort, The Ninth Configuration. And then on Friday, another guest will tackle Blatty's Exorcist 3 in a special bonus episode. Produced a decade apart, the two films act as mirrors of one another, allowing Blatty to return to the theological questions he first raised in the original Exorcist script, but in radically different packages. It's fascinating stuff, and I hope you'll enjoy the thematic double-dipping. So, The Ninth Configuration. Made in 1980 under the title Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, and initially released in a handful of different cuts, Blatty's directorial debut is pitched as a psychological thriller starring Stacey Keach as an American psychologist who arrives at a remote military asylum to treat patients traumatized by the Vietnam War, only to find himself pulled into a series of absurd philosophical debates and a production of Dog Hamlet on his way to a surprising epiphany. It's very much of its time, but it's also eerily timeless, as all the great existential questions inevitably are, and it features a fantastic supporting cast, which we will discuss over the course of the episode. This is someone else's movie. Um, well, it was partly timing, right? Because when you had uh, reached out to me to ask, do I want to come do it? Which I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Blatty had just passed away recently. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that affected me way more than I expected, because while I had certainly grown up with... You know, as a young kid reading The Exorcist and obsessively watching the movie and, and you know, being weirded out by two and then happy again with three. Um, I, so I didn't realize the extent to which he had been a big part of my growing up. And actually, Ninth Configuration, though, was one of the big ones. And again, I hadn't thought about it that much until he died. And I was kind of going back over it and realizing, like, I came to Ninth Configuration in kind of like classic 80s way in that it was like a bootleg videotape okay that was given to me i was in a, a theater class um and we were supposed to come up with a play and at the time uh i was obsessed with that point the, my favorite movie in the world was one full of the cuckoo's nest i just thought it was everything you ever wanted in a movie because apparently at that point i didn't need women uh, <laughs> so there were so i was like it was no, fine there no were positive versions no, exactly right? right so it was exactly so it was just you know they're either ball breakers or i guess hookers and but it's men who have to work the shit out so thankfully i got past that but at the time that was and that certainly was an incredibly powerful movie so i remember in this group we were in i was saying you know let's just do a thing where we can all do crazy mon- we'll all be in a, an insane asylum we we'll all have monologues. And so one of the guys was really into it, and he said, I have this great monologue about whether Hamlet is crazy or not or whether he's pretending to be crazy. And he like and he riffed it out, and I was like, oh, my God, that's the most amazing thing. He's like, yeah, I totally ripped it off from this movie. <laughs> I was like, what movie is that? And he said, oh, dude, you have to see this. And he gave me, you know, like an ELP recording of something he got off of, like, First Choice Super Channel, um, you know, with, like, the tracking line through half of it. And it was actually a perfect way... To watch it, and I just remember putting on the movie, and it just blew my hair back. You know, I was at that age. I was, I guess, 12 or 13, 
and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. But yet it was like, I was like, oh, it's like one full of the cuckoo's nest. But then there's this weird religious stuff. So I, and I understood, oh, this is the guy to the exorcist. So I get that. I kept waiting for the monsters, right? right and then, yeah. but they didn't come. And yet it was still so compelling. And it reminded me stylistically of, of as I, I would just started to watch this Robert Altman guy. And the, and the way the sound worked in the movie made me go, oh, it reminded me of that. So it was this wonderful... And then it ends with one of the world's greatest fight scenes, right? Where he just kicks the shit out of every single biker, apparently, in the world. and Which is also great. So it always stuck with me. And then when Blatty died, and I was kind of listening to a lot of retrospectives and people talking, it really struck me more than I think I'd ever really thought about how it fits within um, The Exorcist, Exorcist 3, and this as this kind of trilogy of faith yeah uh and i thought and and watching it again i've watched it now uh, i think three times since we talked just and again just being struck by again how weird it is um but also how how beautiful and how much it is a very interesting wrestling of a faithful man with the with the question of doubt yeah. uh, and evil which i think was something great that blatty did but what it also did uh, that I loved was that it was it's the only one of his movies it feels like that actually also let you see how funny he was yeah I was explaining this to to Kate just the other day it's like oh well you know he wrote a Pink Panther movie he was a comic writer he's a comedy guy yeah and if you read his books there's a yeah. really dry kind of almost yeah. almost like belt yeah. engagement with, with philosophy and totally yeah British riffing thing that yeah goes oh on. yeah it's fascinating to me that he would make three movies about that are long philosophical arguments that also have this genre aspect to them where you can say, oh, no, they're horror movies about the question of faith. And they're, sure. They're, you know, the greatest trick in The Exorcist is that the devil just wants to make you uncertain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it brings it all back around again at the end of Exorcist 3 with, with Kinderman arguing that if there's a devil, there must be a god, which there's absolutely no proof for in any of his movies but nope. that's the faith part that's you know, like these weird arguments of I don't have to believe in God I believe in you and then smack in the middle is is Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane this yep. bizarre little thing he did for a studio that I think went bankrupt before it even released oh yeah I was I was trying to follow him yeah. it's fascinating the whole yeah and him rewriting it and writing it and then yeah different cuts different yeah. ter- different versions different interpretations he would even argue apparently there was a screening I'm trying to remember when this was in 2005 or 2006 where they ran the wrong print and he was like, nah, that was okay. (laughs) He's fine with whatever because that's the point of the movie. It's just open to whatever interpretation you want to apply. It's obviously not a movie made by a guy who was precious with every single frame, right? He felt like if you get the gestalt of it, it's there. I mean, I love the fact that I I only learned from listening to a podcast about it was that it was basically financed, I think, by Coke or by somebody that's right right? one of the early TV deals yeah exactly it was supposed to be I think it was the thing that became TriStar Pictures yeah exactly yeah and so something or something like that and so I know they had like here's your money um, make your movie put a Um, Coke machine in the corner yeah good luck with that Um, and uh, and and which was perfect and it's the only way you could make a movie like this like I was actually watching it again last night and I was watching with my son um, who is not really big into genre, but who was into comedy more. And so he was, but it was funny after about 10, 15 minutes into it, I was like, what do you think? And he was like, I like it, but I don't understand what kind of movie this is. Yeah. And I realized it's, it's really true that, you know, it is, it really, you, until you get to the end, you can't really tell. There's no moment where you're like, okay, now we're, now it's the bank heist or, right, you know, yeah. okay, well now it's the part where he rides out to get the girl or now it's the part where the children have to save their parents. It's like, it never settles down. 
Um, I think it was Kermode himself who said, like, it was like a film made by a person who doesn't seem to know what films are. Um, yeah. Or something. I'm sure I'm mangling yeah. the quote, it's but whatever it's like, you want it to be, exactly. It's he wants it to be, yeah. Which is, but in, incredibly liberating. And I find it now. It's funny in that it's not so much that I can look at my own work and necessarily see. Oh, I see how the, you know, where I got that from. Say where there's certain or or how that's affecting me as a writer. And yet I go back and look at it. It captures something that I think any writer and filmmaker wants to capture, which is just life. Like he just found something and it just i just go along with that journey the entire time yeah and it is the sense of kind of busyness to it that that i i always i'm always surprised by how many characters there are because i remember the whole thing i know but every time i watch it's like oh that's right he's in this and oh there's a speech about the foot and and all this stuff that's just... i had the moment the first time i rewatched it just a few weeks ago where i was like oh my god joe spinell's in this yeah yeah and and he's playing the most on Joe Spinell, you know, Willie Chichi, and you know the guy from Maniac yeah. is like this quiet, dumpy little little. He is he is he is um what's his face's uh, dog's body. Um, he's um uh, Exorcist uh, uh, Father Karras. Yeah, Miller, Jason Miller. Thank you, Jason Miller. He like he's his long suffering assistant uh, who's trying to collect his dogs for his all all canine Hamlet. Um, Which again is something that I know Blatty pitched. You can just feel it that this is a thing that he yeah. worked in. He'd been trying to do his all canine Hamlet joke yes. for fifty years, and there it is. Yeah. This is his shot. Yeah, it's like the it wasn't his first feature. It was his first film as a director. I believe so. Yeah, but he'd been working in the industry for yeah. 20, 25 years, and you just get the sense that he'd been stockpiling. Yes, all these little ideas, all these conversations yeah. he was having with people on sets, and it all just get gets baked in. Yeah. In this, uh, well, I try. I tried to describe it to somebody once. It's like imagine going into the Star Wars cantina. <laughs> okay, yeah. And you can't quite understand the music, and everybody's talking in different languages. Yeah. But it's just, you know, people in English. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense until you really listen to it and you feel it out. Yes. And even then, I'm still not sure. Oh, it's still. I even. I mean, I was watching again, and I was. You know, it's always interesting to watch it with your kids because mm. you can kind of see things. You imagine what it's like through their eyes and just wondering which of the jokes made any sense, yeah. which which they even realized were jokes, right? Because there's so many riffs and so many, and I mean, you know, Scott Wilson is just incredible in it. Um, it's just like every line is, is, is a joke, is a pun, is an attack. Is something very serious, but and or even the jokes are said with such a deadpan seriousness. Like it's a bizarre, wonderful performance, um, and an incredible role that actually has. And that was what really struck me watching it again because you want to say this movie is a mess or whatever, but his journey is very clear, mm-hmm. as is Kane's, right? Yeah, like yeah. it is actually very clear, decent storytelling of you know, and getting to the point where when the final revelation of why won't you go to the moon is revealed, it's not a particular surprise. But it's certainly, you can see why it took him this long to get there. And when he finally gets there, there is that feeling of catharsis and release. So it's like, that's what I think I love about it is that it's funny, almost against what Kermode said. Like, I think it's that case of somebody who'd worked in the industry and who's just such a great storyteller for so long gave himself the license to look like he was throwing everything away. Mm -hmm. But what he ended up with was still a very compelling uh, story that still gave you a journey that you were always looking for. It didn't feel like somebody who didn't know how to make a movie. It was just somebody who stopped worrying about what 
the right thing was supposed to be. Yeah, there's no regard for convention. Yeah. There's no... There is exposition, but it's not delivered the way it should be. Yeah. In, in any other film, it would have been different. Yeah. And for anyone else, yeah. it would be different. Yeah. Which I think is why the film has such a strange position, not just in Blatty's filmography, but just in general, in yeah. the canon. I mean, people, you either love it or you don't know what to do with it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and if you are, if you're very Catholic in your film tastes, then this is that. This yeah. is the thing that kind of pulls it all together in a really strange way and just comes at you from a new direction or packages something very familiar in an extremely, um, I don't even know what the right word is. I was going to say outre, but that's not right either. It's just, it's a weird box. Yeah. It's a weird box that he put all this stuff in. And that's, I think, the thing, right, is that what's exciting, you know, it's what's always exciting is seeing somebody take a whole bunch of disparate elements that you don't think work, and then out of it... Like, you know, that was what I always remember thinking of The Matrix. What, what made The Matrix oh, so yeah. remarkable was that they took all these things that we'd seen in a bunch of different places and made something unique out of it by, by jamming these things all together, by right. taking Gibson and Kung Fu and anime and Art Deco and all these different things. And in Ninth Figuration, while certainly not as, uh, say, immediately accessible... Kind of, I mean, it was because I was struck last night by okay, yes. On one hand, you can go, I don't know where this movie's going. On the other hand, again, the more movies you watch, I started to go, well, you know, but this also fits fairly squarely in with a very particular type of subgenre of 70s filmmaking, which I would call like the um, men dealing with the trauma of war and mostly Vietnam. Sure. Yeah. Right? That it fit within the MASH. Catch-22. Right. I mean, even in a weird way, you know, you could say that, that although it was certainly more counterculture, but just the, you know, the, the trauma of, that was at the core of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, that, that was very much within that. It's a, gr- a dirty dozen, right? Yeah, like sure. these stories in which men are kind of all shoved together uh, and are dealing with war and it's breaking them down and the lunacy of it is breaking them down. So it's very much within that. And then it takes from all these disparate out and then it's got all that the, that weird anarchic humor uh, that also came from theirs, but that was certainly in the ether there. And then it turns into rolling thunder at the end. Yeah. And then it kind of becomes this amazing um, I mean, again, I was watching that scene last night and kind of going, you know, because I remember as a kid being blown away by it because it's just Stacey Keach kicking the shit out of people. And it's such a funnily I don't know if I want to say American take on Jesus because they're by no means the only ones who imagine avenging Jesus. Right. But it's just such a great... It's, it's a specifically American milieu for Jesus. It, yeah. I think that's what... Yes, exactly. And the idea that... Because it's very interesting... Again, Blatty is very precise in, in, the, in his decisions. While it certainly can look anarchic, at the same time when you watch it, you know, he shows up... So Stacy Keach... You know, you get to the point in the story, obviously, where uh, where he and Scott Wilson have been battling over, is there a God, is there not a God? Scott Wilson's thing is clearly, I want to believe, but you got to prove it to me. And Keech's uh, perspective, uh, Kane's perspective, while he's still believing that he is Hudson Kane as opposed to the killer, is, um, you know, I believe because, you know, we said, you know, because there is evil in the world, I believe there must be a counterforce. Uh, and also there are great examples of sacrifice in the world. But of course, uh, what what Wilson throws back at him as well. Give me a real example, and I was struck by that watching it again because I was and he can't. What's interesting, and at first I was like, oh, is it because it's not possible, or is it because literally this man doesn't know who he is, right. and so he is unable to go back past you know a week or two, so he's unable to. So then he gets to so you know uh, once uh, his his. Uh, 
identity is revealed uh, and off goes Scott Wilson some, you know, I love the fact that they're all supposedly locked up in this place. And the minute Scott Wilson has a temper tantrum, he just hops in a car, drives through the guard barrier, and gets to a bar and drinks his face off. Well, that's the honor system for you. In there the you go, season, right? It was easier. With the weirdest biker gang in television, in movies, it, I mean, it is, it is like every straight-laced parent's fear, yeah. right? It's a bunch of, you know... Tough bikers, but they're also kind of leather queens. Although, here's a fascinating beat that you might want to check out again. Okay. So, you got your lead, uh, Rich, uh, there's Stanley, and uh, Stanley is the big buff guy uh, who, when he pulls off, you know, he's wearing the, the kerchief, the Charles Nelson Riley kerchief, and when he pulls off the sunglasses, very painted eyes. Uh, his, his buddy, who looks more like your standard biker, uh, um, is, you know, you're thinking, okay, well, he's like the straight one until he attempts to rape uh, uh, Scott Wilson. So, okay, clearly some problematic, my least favorite word, but, uh, you know, uh, views on whatever, except that there is this one shot that I swear, like, and it's it's a very clear, they, you, walk, you come into the bar, everyone's going crazy, and they show a guy sitting at the bar and I swear he is he is meant to be the straight-laced gay guy at the bar, not impressed with these youngsters. That's right. He's he's got like this the the, the the with the wood beads and the sweater, and he's sitting there, and it's and again, I mean I'm 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 maybe making assumptions, and yet because it's so clear that those bikers represent some some horrible um, uh, uh, example of of violence and sexuality gone completely anarchic. Right. The fact that that character is also there and looking disapprovingly is a very it's a very interesting moment yeah. and one that I think at least sets up an ambiguity. Right. So in comes Stacy Keach into this pit of hell and tries his best to be Jesus, and that is and so it's a fascinating scene because at this point you want him. You know that he's Killer Kane. You know that he's he's gonna he can kick ass. So you're just ready to come in there, punch all the bikers, and walk out. Uh, and what, he, what he's trying to do is, is save Scott Wilson. And the bikers go through this, this, this ritual, and it's a very ritualistic moment, of denigrating this guy, right? And it's basically very much a renounce your God, renounce your faith. And they pick a very, at the time, American take on it, which is renounce the U.S. Marine Corps. Right, yeah. And right, So they say, you're going to say Marines suck, and, and they play it like, oh, there's no way. And then he says it, and, you know, Stanley gets very upset. He's like, oh, I'm trying to screw you up. And then he's like, to the point where they get him on the ground, and it's like, lick up this this beer, at which, at the point, Stanley does these incredible splits to drop the beer down. So, again, like, very, very weird. He has um, a secret life. Oh my, yeah, there's right? something else going on. Absolutely, right? And it's wonderful. And so, so he's down there, and he forces him, at which point... That he's, but he completely debases himself, and he licks Stacey licks the beer off the floor. Uh, at which point, the partner says, "You know, they start beating him up for disrespecting the car because right. <laughs> these bikers are not very uh, are, are not very consistent yeah. uh, with their feelings, obviously, on American uh, icons. Yeah, they have an undeveloped ethos. Yes, you could say. exactly right. It seems to be." And it, but it's the moment, of course, when they pin down Scott Wilson and pers- and a, a, attempt to orally rape him, that then it's it turn it literally turns into the coward of the county. It literally it's dog named Sue. It is right. a boy named Sue. It is, 
that is the use and Keech is just so wonderful. Literally, it's like, oh, you can do shit to me. You can make me say stuff, but not that little child. At which point he gets out. It's such a great. It's just the shot of Stanley standing there with the beer in his hand and Keech's hand coming out of frame and grabbing it and the moan of what he's squeezing smashes the glass in his hand and then it's on and then it's rolling thunder and he's kicking the shit out of everybody which again was such a standard thing in those kind of 70s movies mm-hmm. right from 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 taxi driver to rolling thunder to all this you know yeah, it's the like it predates it's an exploitation movie like exactly classic Corman yeah. thing from from even five years before right. taxi driver yeah absolutely right billy jack it's you know now right, 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 right. right now fuck it now the ex-soldier is going to make you pay uh, for what you done, and and so all of that stuff all thrown together in a story, and then you know the reveal that after he does all this, that he has taken a knife in his gut, but will not reveal that, so that he can, in a sense, his death be the thing to prove to yeah. Scott Wilson that you know there is a sacrifice to be made. Uh, I, I you know yeah, it's bonkers, but it's wonderful and. I'm just so grateful that, like, you know, a software company had the money to throw to him to say, here, make this movie and do it however you want to make it. Yeah. And and for all of its just insane genre-defying, incoherent choices, which aren't incoherent, they just don't line up with what we think is going to happen. Yeah. It's... There's no question that this is exactly the movie Blatty wanted to make. Yes. That's what fascinates me. Yeah. It is... As you were saying, it's not a disregard. It's just a, a different priority. Yeah. This is where he wants to go, and this is how he needs to do it. Yeah. And watching it the first time, and I saw it in very similar circumstances, actually. Oh, yeah? Um, I just, I was on, yeah, it was panned and scanned. It was on, on pay TV. Yep. And it was an alien experience. Because, yes. you know, right then we're, we were watching movies. I think the thing that was before it was Blue Thunder. Right. It was yeah, just, exactly. It was a much yeah. slicker world by yes. the time it finally surfaced. Absolutely. And it was already a relic. It was only four or five years old, yeah. but it was out of time. Yeah, and it's place. like, what's my camera doing here without a mustache? Yeah. Right. That was my reaction. I was yeah. like, really? What's going on? And Stacy Ke- and, and again, like you can't say enough about Keach because he commits so fully uh, and gives a performance. My like my greatest regret. I interviewed him once for. It must have been for uh, Nebraska. Okay. It was a phoner and we just didn't have enough time because I wanted to ask him about that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask everything about that. Yeah. We talked about it very briefly. He's like, yeah. oh, that was a fun picture. It's like, yeah. no, come on, there's more. No, I know yeah. there's more. What else did you conjure? What did you do? Because it's it's a performance that is absolutely in tune with the movie's tone. Yep. And that is something that I would imagine is impossible. Yes. This guy's a veteran of movies. He's made dozens television episodes he's he's steeped in this production culture yeah and here he somehow has shifted gears into whatever it is blatty's doing they are absolutely simpatico yeah and this comes out and how do you get there how do you how do you talk everybody else into making this thing that you have in your head when it is literally without precedent yeah i mean it seems to me that the one thing that maybe they had going for them in that uh in the in the subgenre that it was in of you know the of the, the you know the, the the crazies and is the is the guy running it crazier than all of them right. is that you can in a sense you like every single character um, is could be given a here imagine it's your movie right and and then perform that way so I mean Robert Loggia's performance let's talk about that like oh. it is bonkers wonderful. 
Um, and he acts as if he is the star of his movie, right? Like he is, you know, there is this amazing story about this guy, um, and, and you know, who sings in blackface and then is obsessed with his, you know, flying belt and, you know, just the tonal shifts that he does in one scene is incredible. And you could see that, that all Blatty would have to do is, you know, here's your guy, you know, I've written you some stuff. I don't know if there was any improv on, but if there was, you know, it was go with it and all everybody has to do is just maintain what they're like they're all coming in a sense from different movies right Mm -hmm. because then you have ed flanders right and and i mean i just want to take a moment like flanders like it's it's the classic flanders role right Right. like he did the exact same role in nexus 3 uh saying elsewhere like compassionate yeah soft right but it's kind of sardonic kind of you know but the wise the guy you and the guy who's always like you want to be with because he's going to be like, hey watch this you know let's watch this crazy thing going on and yet in those key moments when the emotion comes out you can believe he's also a tormented guy so again it's like he is this guy in a weird way who is the audience surrogate who allows you to look at how everybody else is and it's a completely different style of performance from yeah, what Keech is giving, mm-hmm. who walks in straight off a German expressionistic film, right? Yeah. Like, it, it is it is a silent movie performance, right? Like, it is almost like you don't need that dialogue. And it's amazing to watch that shift from, you know, I think the two th- scenes that I was watching last night that really struck me, there was the scene with the hammer, uh, where one of the guys is bashing the wall uh, because he he was trying to re uh, he was trying to resituate his atoms so that he could walk through the wall. Took a running leap at it, didn't work. So he's using the hammer now to let the wall know who's boss. But it's not going through either. And Stacey Keach is very quiet. And says, "You know, I think maybe it's the issue is the properties with the hammer. Why don't you just let me take this and 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 I will get back to you." And it works and it calms him down. And then as things are deteriorating later and he's allowed all the boys to dress up like they're in uh, The Great Escape and he has this wonderful scene where Groper, the poor hapless uh, sergeant who's trying to run the whole thing, walks in in a Nazi uniform, you know, of an age where clearly this man was probably a vet. And so wearing a Nazi uniform was against everything for him. Uh, And Keech is in the midst of having one of his breakdowns. And he has this scene where where he tells him, you know, you are going to wear this uniform you are going to keep it clean or by god you will die in it and it is terrifying it is it is again stacy keach man when he turns it on is incredible and it's just you know to be able to go from like zero to a hundred like that it's yeah like you said it's it's how he managed to pull out that performance amidst all this lunacy uh is remarkable but he becomes this incredible you know, centrifugal force that everyone can kind of spin around. It's amazing. Yeah. And the, I mean, they couldn't have shot it in sequence. There's just no way. Not, I don't, not yeah. that cast, right? They must have had people off on days and in and out. And I don't know. Again, I, I found there was a one podcast. I can find you the name for it after oh, yeah. if you want. And for if listeners want to look, because it was a really good retrospective from a group of horror fans. And as I understood it, well, I don't know sequence wise, it was, I think, a case of like, we got six weeks in a castle in Hungary. Well, I suppose that's true. Once they're there, they're there. Exactly. And I think it was just a case of things got crazy yeah. and they all went a little nuts making their weird ass movie. And there were some, in a, well, I mean, the original, you know, you know who the original Killer Kane was. I'm not sure that it was a Sarazen or am I thinking Nicole else? Williamson. I did not know that. Yes. Who, and now the story of why he was no longer 
in the movie seems to have changed over history, whether it was a case of he couldn't do it and Cage came in, whether he was kicked out, whether it was there's a story that he uh, was involved uh, in a altercation at his hotel in which he ended up throwing uh, much of the uh, hotel furniture out a window because the phone wasn't working. He was a notorious sure. uh, guy, Nicole Williamson, and so... Um, or the fact that he was not working out, uh, as other people have said, that he just didn't do a great American accent and and wasn't Killer Kane. Yeah, it just seems like a real as as for as much admiration as I have for Williamson, yeah. he shouldn't play that role. It doesn't seem possible. It's one of those things where you say, I don't understand how that is. He's a smaller man. Yeah, he's, absolutely, he's right. Kind of more oval in shape. Than... He was a good, but apparently he was a friend of Blatty, so Blatty wanted a man, and so it's why. When the studios forced him to put that horrible, stupid the exorcism, exorcism yeah. part of The Exorcist 3, uh, shoving that into it, he ended up going uh, with Nicole Emson, who understood, I'm going to do you a favor, we're going to get through this, it's going to be okay. Right. So, so yeah, so he was the original one, and I guess that, that he ended up leaving, and then, it, so they, so that's the other, Keach was parachuted in. But again, there's in the, no one more American for that, like that role. Why would yeah. that's so bizarre? I, I'm trying, and now yeah. I'm wrestling with. Okay, is it because he's so good that I can't imagine anybody else, or is, right. it just, is Nicole Williamson just a really wrong choice? And I think it's yep. a mixture of both. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't. I mean, there is that thing where you kind of like, like I, I'm always happy that we have some of those vision of those uh, dailies of Eric Stoltz in Back to the Future because yeah. you go and I really have a huge admirer of Stoltz and yet you watch that and you go yeah no right he was not they were right he was not the right guy for that role he yeah. was just he wasn't getting it um, I would love to have seen some stuff of, of Williams and just, just like I wonder I just because yeah. uh, absolutely like would he how would he have pulled that off it I mean, makes no sense whatsoever yeah I imagine his character would be better at being reserved yes but and he could certainly do, I mean, look, he was crazy. Like, I mean, as far as, like, he could certainly bring on the crazy, right? Sure, like, sure. But... So I'm, it might have been that case of, like, cause I, timing-wise, I'm trying to think of when Nicole Williamson, he did, like, that famous Hamlet, which I saw as a kid, and which was, like, all the levels, and it was really an incredible performance. So it could have been one of those things of, well, he's such a good actor, sure. uh, you know, and he can do anything. But I agree with you that it felt like... It's such a quintessential. It is such a quintessentially American movie. Yeah. Um, and all of those archetypes of all those guys in that are such. It feels like you're watching a platoon, right, from right. a World War Two movie, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. here's the guy from Brooklyn. Here's the guy from the Northeast, right? Here's the Southerner, like all of those types. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, to, to to have anybody other than Keach now is obviously. Obviously unthinkable. Yeah, it's indelible. But yeah. and also, though, it must have helped him for the performance to have him parachuted in because the rest of the actors would have figured out who they were together. And yeah. then there's this inside, this outsider, there's this invader. Yeah. Yeah, so it feels like one of those things where I, I would imagine that, that, because certainly I've never heard like people complaining about the making of the movie. Never, like all the, all the actors who ever get talked to, to about it always say, well, yeah, it was a intense experience or right. whatever, but... But, um, and you know, there are stories, which some of which we can't tell you, uh, but in the end, it's, it looks like one of those uh, experiences probably where you get dropped in, you go crazy for a little while, you come out, and then you end, I mean, who knows what you expect to end up with. I don't know if anybody would have expected to end it up with this, but, right. 
But, uh, you know, thank God they did. Yeah. And what this is is different every time because, of course, yes. it wasn't finished when it came out. There was, Like, that wasn't the end of it. There were new cuts and right. different versions. I don't think I've ever and... seen any of the different ver. How different are they? I have you seen any of the them? One that, I... The one that we would have... The one that was on cable yeah. anyway, the one we first would have seen is shorter. Oh, okay. But not by much. It okay. six or seven minutes. Okay. And it may also simply be... A lot of organization. Okay. And things are cut differently. I remember the rhythm feels different now. Oh, really? Eh? Uh, but okay. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't tell you how. That's okay. the problem. And, and uh, I don't know that any of the earlier editions have survived. The home video version that was released on VHS is probably different from the DVD cut. Okay. And I'm just trying to figure out if they... They never really go into the director's cut aspect of it in the packaging here. Right. But uh, when it was released on... I don't think it was ever released on disc as Killer Kane. No, right? No. Twinkle, yeah. yeah the, it was, the name was reclaimed. Yeah. I mean, and it's so... I mean, the title itself, just the the, 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 the picking that, it's so queer. It's such a weird and very compelling thing. But then you hear, like, what does it have to do yeah. other than, I guess guess with just the improbability of life and therefore of faith yeah which it I, sounds vaguely like a horror movie this way yes maybe that's I what it is that's yeah. really all it is right yeah absolutely right yeah what are the first eight? Oh, this is the one yeah, yeah exactly so, no I don't know the first eight configurations I'm yeah coming up to exactly this. so here according to yes here we go um, according to DVD compare they're very handy uh, trivia site I have to look that up then I didn't I've never used that site before I'm going to quote directly over the years, there have been no less than five different cuts of this film released, with various running times from 99 minutes up to 140. Blatty disowned all versions except one. His approved cut runs 118 minutes and is the version that was originally released to theaters in the U.S. Hmm. This is also the version currently yep. available on DVD. There it is. That's the uh, one. And Blu-ray as well, I'm okay. pretty sure. Yep. So well, yeah, I mean... If you've seen it since, yeah. you have seen his cut. Yeah, because that's the one that I saw that I've been watching. It didn't feel really different from the whatever the one I had on my bootleg tape. But as you said, it's one of those things where, pff, you know, you move this around, move that around. It probably meant a lot to him. To, to, to me, it was, you know, the structure is a very clear kind of, you know, three-part structure of he arrives into this craziness. There is the middle part, which is, you know, this ongoing debate uh, of faith, along with lots of other lunacy, until the moment when it is revealed who is what his real identity is, and then a short, dirty third where you know everything goes to hell, but yeah. you know the answers come. So, uh, and that's always been so. Whatever was moved around, I don't feel like I. I yeah. The version I saw when I first started was all that different. Yeah, it's probably like a flash dance situation where when they were cutting it, the sequences could be moved around in any right. Given, as long as you're within the first forty-five minutes or the yeah. middle forty, yeah, it's all going to work out. Yeah. But the other thing, too, is that well, just the second you started breaking down the action, it's like, yeah, it's a film noir. It's a pulp uh, yes. detective novel yes. as well. Yeah. That's yeah. the other thing it is. It's, yeah. a, it's a, you know, it's Shutter Island, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. A bunch of other things where people are just, you know, the investigator is the unreliable narrator, is the yeah. subject, is the, yeah. the, the fly in his own trap. But that structure makes it instantly understandable, even though yeah. the approach is really baroque and different yeah. and... and Unconventional. Yes. We can still sort of hook on to the idea of this man is having conversations with people to get to an essential truth. Yes. And then the other theme, the faith theme, emerges. And for me, the first time I watched it, 
it felt like a really weird digression. And then subsequently, it's like, oh no, of course that's what William. Ble- that's the only reason he's making this movie. That's why he. That's why I'm here. Exactly. So he can have this debate in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it feels like he. he and I think you're absolutely right. It's funny. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. It does have that detective structure, that sense of hidden. And, you know, right from the get-go, you know something's up with him because clearly he's weird and Flanders is acting weird too and there's the little hints that something is up although you're not quite sure exactly what the the connection is. Um, But you're absolutely right. So... And I think that's, you know, probably another example of Blatty being, you know, a professional writer having come up that he had to make it entertaining. I mean, as crazy as it is, uh, it's still profoundly entertaining. There is no moment where you go, I'm bored. Um, You may be confounded and go, I don't know what I'm watching, but it's always fascinating to watch. I mean, it struck me watching the new uh, Twin Peaks, uh, which I, you know, really enjoyed. uh, and, And because I'm... You know, I had forgotten how much I'd missed being in Lynch's mind. Uh, and he's just one of those guys that can take you right in. Yeah. Um, I have no idea. I, I, it's, you know, as a digression, but it's not... Um, have you watched it? Did you watch it? Not that? yet, no. So it's, I mean, you can't really spoil Lynch at right. all. No, I, I assume, what, yeah. four episodes in and we're yeah. closer to any answers. No, and because and it isn't about answers, as it never really was. Mm-hmm. What was surprising to me is that it's not yet about Twin Peaks either. Okay. That the, like the majority of the story takes place elsewhere and is far more like the beginning of Fire Walk With Me uh, okay. in terms of its, not so much its brutality, but in terms of its, how is this all? I, I'm sure it will be. I see echoes of it, but it is clearly Lynch working through stuff that he wants to deal with and maybe eventually, but it's, so it will never have the, um, you know, what I think always hit people, understandably, with the original Twin Peaks, and I was re-watching that again with my kids as well, and being struck by, you know, okay, I get why it was so popular, and it really, the murder mystery was one thing, but it was classic television, here is a town you'd like to live in. Here is a place that has its own rules and ethos and mysteries and stories, but it is fundamentally a place I want to spend my week every, for an hour every right, weekend. Right, right. I want to go there. And this new series is not that. It is okay. decidedly not that. Um, and that's fine to me because, again, I trust him. And bringing back to the point of it was it's prof- it's so entertaining. And that, that, that Lynch can do things uh, like, you know, looking at, you know, just a clear classic shot of a sofa against a brick wall and make it seem weird and right. compelling. And that he has... But he has still that showman's desire to always engage you, right? Um, it's never about boring you. And and that was the same thing I found with Ninth Configuration, is that it so wants to entertain you, even while it's going nuts and crazy and stuff. And even when it comes down... I mean, what was interesting to me, because I started to compare, I was like, okay, how does it compare to the other two films in this kind of unintended trilogy? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Exorcist, which you know, I think is, is you know, is in, in so many ways, I mean, not that we have to play, make a comparison, but Exorcist is a fundamentally different experience because that is a full and complete movie right. that also has, knows exactly what it is. It's right in the pocket. Blatty, you know, and and Friedkin, um, you know, never made better. It's, it's kind of a perfect movie. Um, and while it certainly has that question of faith in it, and Karis's story, it is, like you said, it's the realization that the girl was just the way for the devil to try to convince Karis 
that this is all bullshit and right. to despair. And he wins by by saying no and by sacrificing himself. Um, and so, but that discussion is very underneath the surface. Yeah, it's not what the movie's about. Exactly. And it's certainly not the way he tells the story. And really, like, it's fun. I, I, I really uh, love the director's cut of Exorcist. Oh, yeah. Because it has what I think is one of the most important scenes in the movie that they didn't put. And it's just a scene after one of the brutal Exorcist scenes where it's Karis... And oh, side the conversation, up. and they or they're just sitting outside on the ch- on the stairs. That's right, and it's just a moment of really, and it's that's where it's the lowest moment. That is the moment of despair. That is the moment of are we going to be able to do this? You know, and so I and Blatty made a big point of like that should be in there, and and, and so I'm so glad they put it back because it was yeah that but that's as much as the movie wants to get into that stuff. Uh, and then you go, you know, and then you've got the discussions in here and then, you know, Exorcist 3, which to me has always been, and you know, because of, I guess it's, um, troubled production history, right. you know, was like such a strong opening and strong middle and then just kind of loses it at the end. Yeah. And unfortunately will never be able to probably be the movie Have you seen that, that he cut? intended it. I, is there an actual yeah, yeah, other yeah. cut? Chef okay. Factory reconstructed it just last year. Uh, okay. Under Scream Factories. Okay. Okay. Uh, they had to use pieces of a VHS cassette. Okay. Version, like Blatty's dub, basically. I would love to check that out and see. Does it work better? It doesn't work worse. Okay. It's still. It boils the story down. I mean, it never, yeah. It never gets bigger. Yeah. In a way that. Right. After that sequence in the hospital, which is the yes. single tape nightmare yeah. of all nightmares. Right. It was ex- yes. The film kind of never hits that high again. Exactly. And the exorcism sequence, as as unnecessary as it is dramatically, yeah. is a kind of way to get that up again. Sure. And in Blatty's version, it peaks. Yeah. And then it just sort of settles. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's kind of the same way the Ninth Configuration plays, where it's peak, 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 peak. Yeah. And the high at the end is just a sort of a realization rather than a catharsis. Right. Because you've been watching catharsis for two hours. Right. Uh, in Exorcist 3, it's more of a, well, we know all the cards are on the table now. We know who everybody is. Eh, that's the solution. Let's go home. And, yeah, and I feel like the problem with Exorcist 3, and I was watching it again, and, and you know, again, when, when after he died, and I watched basically this trilogy, mm-hmm. and and I was struck by how much more successful Ninth Configuration is than Exorcist 3 in playing out that argument. Right. And finding then a solution, because I couldn't really explain to you how... And honestly, in a weird way, while I understand why he kills Ned Flanders when he does in Exorcist 3 to kind of put uh, poor George C. Scott on on his own, right. it really takes away from, you know, the kind of debate. Like, you almost, you really, I wished he had done a scene where it could have been Flanders, Scott, and, and Duriff yeah. in a scene together so you could have seen that argument. Because that felt like that was the debate that you wanted to have. Right. And then you could have, you know, but he killed him early and as a, or at least earlier so that it just became Scott. And I couldn't tell you, I couldn't really explain to you what revelation occurs at the end that really proves or disproves anything in the way that the exorcist clearly states the devil does not win because of Karis's sacrifice. And in the way in this one, um, you know, Scott Wilson is freed of his fear uh, because of the sacrifice made by Cain. Right. Yeah. Um, and Exorcist 3 just feels like, for, for I mean, and there's so much that I really love about Exorcist 3, but once it gets into 
uh, once Flanders is gone and after, like you said, the nightmare to end all nightmares, mm-hmm. you don't, I don't quite know what that movie is anymore. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it felt to me in a weird way, like Blatty was just saying once and for all, like, I'm done with this conversation. Right. By having Kinderman just, right. just say that. Yeah. Like, I believe in you. Shut up. Leave me alone. It's, yeah. I get it. There's Maybe. a devil. Right. Uh, and maybe that's part of it. That the, oh, that's interesting, yeah. yeah. The devil who doesn't actually appear in Exorcist 3. Yeah. It's a minion and all yeah. that. Uh, the Gemini just gets to slink off and be pissed off about it. Yeah. And his reign of terror ends, but it's it's really just a strange, spiteful kind of evil that just says, pay attention to me. Yes. I didn't get my, I didn't get my due. And I get that, because that comes from the same small, pissy world yeah. of... Georgetown in The Exorcist, ah. like where everybody's just sort of uh, yeah, made so yeah. much more sense on the page. Yes, uh, in Legion as an extension of that story, yeah. because yeah, everybody is concerned with status and respect. Yeah, and Kinderman just he never cared about any of that, and he's the last person you'd want to be right. in a room with someone who demands obeisance. Yes, and it doesn't that just doesn't play when you turn it into a movie because conflict has to come from the outside. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's funny because yeah, I'd never really picked up on yeah. that as an undercurrent and I never read the book. Oh, the book's great. Um, the book is a so, fun read. Yeah. No, I'd heard. And, uh, um, but yeah, most, all of my bladdy is, I read the exorcist. Um, and you know, and it was interesting. I, the exorcist was one of those books where it, it adds a bunch of stuff that you watch the movie and go, didn't need it. Yeah. You know, the movie gets to exactly... I mean, I was saying about The Exorcist, the thing that struck me was uh, the difference of watching The Exorcist, just for me personally, mm-hmm. before I had kids and after. Um, because before I had kids, to me, The Exorcist was a scary movie about, uh, obviously, possession uh, and, and and these poor priests and fighting this devil. And afterwards, and I remember I got to see The Exorcist when they re-released it, and I, so I went to see it in the theater, and yeah. two things... And I just had my kid... My first kid, and the th- two things struck me was a the sound was much louder than I had ever thought. It was like watching Taxi Driver the first time. Yeah, and it's hearing, a really assaultive. It is, and the scene that got me was the Spinal, spinal tap, tap scene. Yeah, how loud and how shocking it is, and I realized, oh, that's the other horror movie. It's the your child is sick and you can't fix it. Yeah, uh, and it's funny how that hadn't really struck me, and even reading the book, I don't think was really that much of a thing for him. I think that was what Friedkin probably brought to it or, yeah. or whatever in terms of it being also just that terror. Uh, and it, uh, maybe it's also just Ellen Burstyn's incredible performance. Mm. And um, it's the fact that that's the only time that, that Reagan is screaming. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. She's right. in agony. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody feels it. I, I, the first time I saw it with, a, with an audience would have been in the 80s and it was the original 73 cut. Okay, yeah. And it was at the Bloor, I guess. Yeah. And people were just cringing. You could feel yeah. the whole room go... Yeah. And that needle shows up. Yeah. And then subsequently, I mean, I don't have kids, but to understand, yeah, yeah. you see it as an adult and realize, oh, yeah, sure, of course. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, I think it's probably just also getting older, right? I think because as a kid, you kind of somewhat associate with Reagan, but I think really you associate with the priests. They're the ones we're going to save. They're the heroes. So yeah. they're the heroes, right? Uh, and I think, yeah, as you get older and you start to go, oh, yeah, look, that that is also a story of a parent. Um, and, uh, and, and so again, why I think it's, it's, it makes sense why in The Exorcist that big debate, which is certainly much bigger in the book of faith and evil and, and what is the point of faith in a world where this kind of evil exists, is is kind of subsumed into the story in that great way that a great director and filmmaker can say, no, trust 
trust your story here. Yeah. But it's great to see in Ninth Configuration him going, no, but I get to now do what I want, and I'm going to put those debates in here. But he gives them to two great performers and gives them, I mean, the wonderful, obviously the best one is the foot, right? right. It's that it's the uh, debate over whether, if, you know, if God is just a big all-knowing foot, you know, and why not? Um, yeah. And what is the foot doing? And, and what is, and it's great and it's perfect. And it has the irreverence of a truly uh, that is allowed that uh, like a truly faithful person would have that Blatty has that is like he's willing to it's like you know in my experience the guys that you want to have the most interesting debates about God with are priests are the faithful who have to confront the doubt in order to get to the part where they're saying but I have faith right. so it does not it does not make them afraid they don't have the um the evangelist's fear of the questioning uh, that's part of the deal is you have to, if you're not questioning it, your faith, what does your faith mean? And Blatty brings that. And Ninth Configuration, there is no point where you feel like, and that's what's great about the way Cain deals with him, is that his questioning is accepted, right? To the point where he lets him wear his little girl's dress right. to the to the to the church and doesn't scold him when he sits there being a jerk about it because he knows this is how you get to faith, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, I just it's 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 a remarkably affirming story as well, which I find very very powerful. Yeah, and so this brings us to the closer, which yep. we kind of already addressed a little bit. Uh, what of the ninth configuration have you? borrowed or lifted or referenced or is any of it in right. your creative dna yeah i mean i definitely was thinking about that i was like okay well there's i mean you know usually if you, something really affects you what was it and i think there are some structural things that i definitely realize now i really i really like and it's something that i had always only associated with altman but now i see now i was probably just as much from it it's that background dialogue that carries themes and and little bits and pieces that there is a there is and so in script writing it comes down to what i always love to do is giving those moments uh and giving those little asides uh ideally to secondary characters um so that what it feels like in a scene is that it's never that there is two stars and then just a bunch of of extras that you're trying to build a sense of a world and I think what was so amazing and what I think, I know when I sit down to tackle something, every time you sit down to write a scene for the first time, you are building a world, right, that exists in here and being able to see it completely so that it almost like it feels like, let's say I were to move the camera over here, there's something interesting. Or move the camera over here, there's something interesting. Right. And that's always the way I've thought about it. And there's a there's a, a density and a depth uh, to, the, to this that I absolutely love. And then, honestly, it's the... Ideally, I think, you know, I realized that his real, and I mean, the, the, the danger of it can be lapsed into earnestness, but what we're talking about is his ability to raise just some real heady themes and talk about some very abstract concepts, which need to be discussed as abstract concepts, in an entertaining way that still maintains the rules of drama, which is, you know, two or more people who want conflicting things and who are going to bash into each other and the scene will not be over until one of the or both of them gets or doesn't get what they want is all there. And so I think that was the other thing that really struck me was that, yeah, every time I am writing, one of my first questions that devils me, bedevils me and 
uh, I hope to get to eventually uh, is what is this about? You know, that, that it is, um, you know, it was interesting. I, I, I heard um, uh, uh, Vince Gilligan talking about uh, at one point doing uh, something with Michael Mann. And he started talking about the themes of the thing they were working on. And, and Michael Mann was like, ah, themes, shmemes, those are just for, you know, professors and jackets. What's the story? And on the one hand, I get that. And on the other hand, I call bullshit. Because Michael Mann yeah, is know? one of the most thematically consistent and compelling filmmakers. Now, maybe he doesn't think about it. Right. Or maybe he has to tell himself, if I don't think about it, then it comes out naturally. Which is great. And that's probably a more ideal way than you know, thinking about it too much and then shoving it in too much. Um, but in the end, you know, themes are what we're, I mean, uh, you know, what we're trying to do here, obviously, are tell stories about things, right? That are, if we want something to last. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it felt like Blatty and Ninth Configuration, you know, nailed it. Even as weird as it is and as crazy and as you said, some people will watch it and don't know what to do with it. Other people watch it and love it. But I think in large part, it's because those themes, you know, whether you're Christian, religious or not, are profoundly compelling and done in an entertaining way. And so I think for me, that is something to aspire to. Right. Um, and which I would love to be able to say, at times, I've been able to achieve. Is there a thing that you would want to direct people to that best reflects that? I mean, of my own stuff. Yeah, is there something that jumps out? Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, look, I'll be honest. Obviously, we're here, here, this will come out, I guess, around the time that Killjoys comes out. Sure. And I think... Um, the stuff that I've done on Killjoys, um, and I would say, you know, in the first season, uh, I got to do a horror, a straight up horror story. Uh, so it was episode uh, episode five, called "A Glitch in the System." Uh, that is your. It was it was my uh, uh, chance to do. Um, the great thing about TV is it gives you a chance to redo movies that you feel like that was really great, but then this part went wrong. Right. So I got to do Event Horizon. Um, but without the parts that I thought weren't working as well. Um, but, you know, haunted spaceship and crazy guy. But it was also a story of what happens when uh, you no longer have the purpose, When especially as a soldier, when you no longer have the purpose that you need. And in a way, now as I'm just thinking about it, actually it has, you know, in terms of that, it is about military men yeah, uh, a little bit. and craziness. <laughs> Um, and realizing that, you know, that, that you don't know who you are. Um, so all of that stuff actually kind of fits. Uh, and I think it's just, and, but hopefully done in an entertaining, you know, horror movie way that feels like it's not so heavy on the theme that you feel like you're getting a, a lesson. So I yeah. think that'd be a great one to watch for sure. That's the stuff that I love, uh, discovering that, well, not discovering. I love the idea that the inspirations are floating around out there like there are people whose first experience of the thing was that x-files episode right yes and then you get to go back and find the real thing yes because your, your brother or your cousin yeah. or your best friend is like oh that sucked I, this movie does that right yes and it's this endless conversation that we have with with narrative and yeah with, with genre tropes and yeah. things and uh yeah it's just it's a it's always fun to see somebody doing that in a in a completely different context that just says hey i love this thing you should love it too and that's absolutely, and that's what I love about television, and what I love about, uh, and I mean, obviously, with Killjoys, 
you know, in a lot of ways, when we sit down, we go, "This is this movie we're doing. We're doing this movie because a it fits with the with the the the, the type of show it is, but also that's just the way our brains work." And right. you're right; it is a conversation, and it's a chance to do some things differently, and it's a chance to interrogate things, uh, and hopefully, if people, but in a way that feels like if you've seen it, great. If you haven't, hopefully, we're gonna have some fun. Um, yeah, I couldn't imagine having to feel like you have to do everything completely unique. And on your own, I know some people are like that, and God, and more power to them. But for me, the fun is is being within that thing. And the great thing about genre in general is that you're expected to. That in fact, that's part of the deal. Yeah. You're not supposed to come in here and completely upend all the apple carts. You're supposed to give us some of those tent poles that we absolutely love. Right. So I guess the only other question is, will Foot make an appearance in Killjoy season three? That's a great point. Is that, well, it is, is that I, who they've been chasing? I have to be honest that we've already shot and filmed it. So I've never even thought, but now you're making me think clearly season four. Um, I mean, what's one of the nice things it is about Killjoys that I like that I think has also, I think about it now, a bit of a connection is like, while we've certainly never gotten into questions of metaphysics so far as is there or not a God or whatever, uh, but we do have religion as a big part of the show. Uh, and one of the fun things for me, uh, and even in the very last episode uh, I just did in Nine, uh, where one of the conceits uh, is, a, is a ritualistic day, a night before war, when everyone has to go about and do a reckoning with people who they either have a problem with or a thank you to say or whatever. And I always really, one of the things I love about sci-fi in general is being able to invent that sort of lore, and in Killjoys, it was great that from the beginning, Michelle had imagined a religious space, uh, which is not something you always get in science fiction, mm-hmm. um, or oftentimes religion is the one thing that we're like, wow, we have no need, you know, the Star yeah, Trek kind of, it. we're done with that, and, you know, I was always a huge fan of Babylon 5, and J. Michael Straczynski in general, um, because he was like, that stuff is still at the core of who we are, and will probably be the core of any sentient being are those metaphysical, metaphysical questions. And we get to do that on Killjoys too, which is really, really nice. Yeah, cool. I look forward to it. Yeah. My thanks to Adam Barkin, whose work you can enjoy when Killjoys returns for its third season this Friday on June 30th on Sci-Fi in the U.S. and Space in Canada. I've seen the first two episodes and they're a lot of fun. Check it out and catch up to the first two seasons on Blu-ray, DVD, or the respective Sci-Fi and Space Channel websites. You can find Adam on Twitter at Adam Barkin, all one word, and you can find The Ninth Configuration on Blu-ray and DVD in an excellent special edition from Hen's Tooth Video. It's also streaming on Shudder. Uh, so is The Exorcist 3, kind of think of it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Simcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you, and if you don't, you risk suffering the wrath of foot, and nobody wants that. And don't forget to come back Friday for the special bonus episode on The Exorcist 3. It's a good one. Thanks for listening.